0: Brass and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Studio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Studio, making his fortnightly appearance in the program. This is Fortnightly Appearance, he's the lead prospect analyst for fangraphs.com, Eric Longenhagen. Eric Longenhagen is the guest on this program as he does. Every two weeks, Eric Longenhagen endeavors to analyze all prospects of so particular note. This week, pitching prospects. Probably a decade ago, perhaps even a decade and a half ago. One of the, uh, Baseball prospectus founders, Gary Huckabay, suggested that there is no such thing as a pitching prospect. There is some evidence to the contrary, but direct your attention to all of the prospect lists, which feature typically something between 50% and even uh, the most extreme cases. Still a third of their lists are occupied by pitching prospects. And yet there's no doubt that there is a certain amount of risk associated with pitchers. I asked Eric Lungan some questions. Regarding these very important matters, for example, is there such thing as a minimum acceptable velocity for a pitching prospect? Dave Cameron, the managing editor of Fangraphs, uh, has suggested recently that at some point in the not so distant future, something like ninety-five mile, miles per hour will be the average, the average fastball velocity for all pitchers. I ask Eric uh, Logan, is there is there a velocity at which a pitcher is throwing uh, at which you will just ignore him? The answer is yes. However. To learn the exact range uh, will require everyone uh, to continue listening. Uh, Also, I say, Eric, uh, have you considered ever not including a pitcher on your top 100 prospect list? No is the answer uh, to that question. But uh, what it does is it opens the door. It opens a metaphorical door uh, to a longer conversation about uh, perhaps how many pitching prospects it makes sense to include on such a list. The results will not shock you uh, because they are grounded in reason and arrived at only after some uh, considerable thought. Also, uh, upon whom did Eric Lungenegin whiff the biggest? Uh, With his 2017 prospect list, I guess it was Beau Bichette. That's the answer, and and uh, we addressed that very early in the conversation. Okay, and uh, and so that is that is everything. It is not everything in the world. It is everything. It is everything that uh, requires mentioning in this introduction. So let us get to that conversation. Uh, What is It It is Fangraphs Audio. Who is the future lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com? Eric Longenegen, and when does it begin? Right now. has been to uh, run kind of slow at the beginning. Well, not slow, slow, but I do – I start off – I start off at a pace that is slower than what my final pace will be. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And uh, I do that because I just feel more comfortable doing it. I don't really have a great reason. And so um, – but it makes – but so last year, I felt amazing in the second half of the race like I was sprinting the whole time. It was great. This year, however, I wanted to leave the door open for a slightly better time despite the fact that I had not trained particularly well. Uh, mm-hmm. and so what I did was I uh, I went a little bit faster early on in the race. Uh, but I did I did not have the same sort of second half that I usually do. Mm. Yeah. I uh, it was uh so I said, Well, that's too bad. That's too bad.
1: Do you approach other onerous tasks in your life by starting them slow and sort of dipping your toes in before you really dive into them?
0: Well, I think that's the best way to do it. Yeah. Because what if uh what if you know, after you begin, uh it turns out you don't have to continue doing it? you don't want to put an invest in all this work for nothing. Mhm. Yeah. Is that how you start the is that how you start the the organizational Uh probably yeah. <laughs> Part
1: of it is is the familiarity with the process I, is just becomes uh a little more second nature.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Once you've been working on them for like four months in a row right so like starting for the first time in a while on doing one just to make sure that you just to make sure that i don't embarrass myself by like leaving somebody that was traded for off or something like it's just a lot of covering my ass uh and and just making sure that things are airtight uh from like a a comprehensive Coverage of the system perspective, not necessarily, You know, if there's more weight, more calories burnt mentally on that side of things than it is just about analyzing the players at this point.
0: Yeah, hey, what's the biggest? What's the biggest mistake you've made so far? That's, a, I guess, like I was really
1: down on Bo Bichette last off season, right? Like that's probably the ba- the really bad one.
0: Well, yeah, and I, but I'm thinking more like uh, clerical, clerical errors.
1: Oh uh mentally mixing like doing the cubs list last year and um like mentally mixing up the injury histories of Bailey Clark and Mike Matuwela in my head when Bailey Clark had never been injured and that I just is. didn't like I didn't d- double check right that's why it's always important with injury stuff if you can to be specific because if you force yourself to be specific then you force yourself to like look up what the injuries actually were. So you
0: sort of make a vague comment about injury history? Him,
1: yeah, him being hurt, yeah. Because he was, like, in the honorable mention section of the list. Because realistically, he's a relief prospect and one that, you know, had trouble throwing strikes Is
0: Wait, is Matuela in the Cubs system too?
1: No, he's in the Rangers system.
0: Mm, okay. Wait, did Bailey Clark throw a Duke? Yep. That's why you – that's how you uh, – Conflated them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Let's talk about Bo Bichette. What did he do? That um, how how did he sneak up on you? What, so let's uh, for, clar- for uh for for sake of clarification, Bo Bichette is a middle infield prospect. Is that fair to say?
1: I think that's fair. Yeah,
0: middle infield prospect for the Toronto Blue Jays, who was very good at low A to begin the season, mm-hmm. and then um, did not exhibit uh, much in the way of decline upon. Uh, a promotion as a 19-year-old to to high A, which I'm getting, Florida State League, is that
1: right? In the Florida State League too, yeah. 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 Uh,
0: This was a
1: situation where uh, it taught me two things. One was just a reminder, and the other one was more of a a learn this particular thing the hard way. Uh, So Bichette, despite being a Florida high schooler, uh, from like the St Petersburg area was an Arizona state commit, and so he played in more uh like prep showcase tournaments here in Arizona than most of the relevant floridian high school prospects do in a driven uh, in a given draft class so i like got to see a bunch of Bo Bichette uh in addition to like the area code games and that sort of thing and just whenever I saw him and you can go on youtube and Look at my old personal YouTube account and see like the video I took of Bichette at that time. He was just bad, like really horrendously bad. You could see that the bat speed was there, but he was swinging at everything and uh missing in a way that was very ugly. And he just had a bunch of bad at-bats for me against inferior pitching. And then at area codes, uh, compared to the rest of the kids on that Southeast team, he was a little kind of chubby, unathletic, did not look the part at shortstop at all. Uh, I didn't think he looked like an infielder uh, and that there was a chance that he'd have to move to like left or right field at some point. And so at that point, uh, where I have concerns just from my in-person looks about all aspects of the profile, it's kind of hard for me to be enthusiastic about him. So he was a 2016 draftee. He hit well in a brief GCL stint uh, last summer after he was drafted in the second round.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then – Came out this spring and yeah, it was incredible. He hit like three eighty at Low A, over seventy games, and then went to the Florida State League for a month and a half and hit three twenty-three. Uh and he's nineteen. He's probably not gonna stay at shortstop, but he it's second or third base. If we're talking about someone with like an elite this is, he might have an elite bat, <laughs> you know. Um and so what it taught me was there were people telling me that this kid was good Uh as the draft got closer and closer Bichette was I saw him early and then in the middle of the showcase season Uh late on showcases like the Mets have won in the northeast um, you know people thought he was the best player at that showcase and just the needle was moving up and up and up as the draft approached and I just didn't listen to people because I saw what I saw And I want to be confident in what I'm seeing, Uh, but in this case, I was a little stubborn and overly resolute when I should have, you know, listened to the volume of opinion that was coming in about this about this player.
0: You you mentioned uh, that uh, Bichette's from Florida, but he was an ASU uh, commit, right? Yeah, he Uh, was one of several.
1: High end commits who did not make it to campus,
0: right now. Um, if you, which is, is part of
1: why the, that program is hurting right now,
0: I, w- I I'm inclined to wonder. Um, and This happens, you know, when I see um, if I see a player from a state that features a number of strong baseball programs, and um, yet he's playing elsewhere. My my initial assumption, perhaps flawed. Is that, um, those schools did not, did not want him. It, um, is, is, I, I'm assuming because, uh, Bichette worked out, um, or has, you know, has worked out to this point, that that's not entirely the case. Well, um, so I suppose, what, how often is that the case? And then what are the other reasons that a player, uh, you know, might, for example, go across, uh, go across the country, I- despite the fact that he, Actually, might be coveted into some state.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a player to player, family to family situation. Whenever an ex-big leaguer, uh, in this case, Dante Bichette is involved, you always wonder if there's some interpersonal relationship that, uh, leads the player to pick a school that is not geographically close to where they're from. It's also like St. Petersburg. Or like Lakewood High School, is there really a a slam dunk college in, on like the Gulf side of Florida? You know, it's not like, I guess the University of Florida can get whoever they want whenever they want, right? But it's not like this kid is from Dade County and going to Miami or something like that. Right. Um, and it's also possible that, uh, and I think this might be something that's commonly seen on the basketball side of things but with AAU ball and basketball the the baseball equivalent of that is these travel ball teams and if there's a lot of intermingling of kids from different regions on some of the elite travel ball teams then maybe they're making decisions about where they go to school together or sharing that sort of information with each other where uh the general population is not they're just sort of going to sc- making you know they're not Interacting with other elite ball players from 14 on,
0: so geography becomes l- less of an issue than the personal relationships that have already developed between the players.
1: And I think, certain, yeah, I think for the for the elite prospects in the class, that's especially so. Yeah, that makes sense. And then maybe, I mean, it could just be something dumb like Bo Bichette heard that the girls at ASU were hot and like wanted to come here.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, he could have heard that he could have heard that yeah.
1: or that he was going to play as a freshman, you know.
0: Or, or alternatively,
1: they saw Tracy Smith have Sam Travis and Kyle Schwarber at Indiana and do well and like want like when he got the job kids
0: commit, I don't know. Or uh, or there's a professor that about whom he was particularly excited at ASU.
1: Yeah. You got to consider that. They do some interesting they're doing interesting energy research with algae. So maybe that was what he was interested in.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, it is possible. The, uh, alright, so you, so you whiffed a little bit on Beau Bichette. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's gonna happen. Yeah, it is. It's <laughs> gonna happen. I know, I, I believe, I believe that, uh, you expressed some frustration during our, our, our most recent conversation on the, the program. You wanted to, you want to get them all right. I think is, is, you said something <laughs> to, to that effect. Well, yeah, like it's a weird, I, I think,
1: I think you have to have a healthy balance between not wanting to be wrong, but also being okay
0: when you are. Yeah. But you just have to be, you're not, listen, the baseline, right, isn't all players, right? The baseline is, you know, if you look at, if you look at the, uh, what is it? Like, you you, you know, uh, war per, per overall pick in the draft right you know that there's a there's a you know that those estimates exist um and um if you, you like your goal is to try and beat that because that's that's like essentially i mean more or less not entirely but more or less that's the te- that's that's the way that the teams have bet on the players right mm-hmm. and it's very top heavy the the war I mean, the curve is very top of it. It's the the wins that are produced by, like, you know, the top overall pick and then, you know, one through two through ten or whatever. Um, I mean, even by the second round, you you oughtn't be expecting much in the way of major league value. Obviously, there will be individual instances, but there are also a lot of misses. So I think that's your baseline. Right? Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. All
0: right. I just want you to be able to. Just want you to, be able to I'm also doing
1: for the first time this off season. You have to sort of revise. You have to revise your opinions on on guys in a way that is public and meaningful. Because it used to be that I could just have an opinion about someone, and it maybe necessarily it wouldn't necessarily be published anywhere. Because just to see players, but you don't necessarily write about everyone, uh, for a given publication. And so you could just have your opinions about players and then either be right or be wrong eventually. Whereas now, after a year, I get to make a decision again on everyone. Mm hmm. Some, so, some
0: players you will be, I assume you will be revising your assessment of them.
1: Right, but there, I will also be forced to ask myself the question, do, should I hold firm on opinion X or Y? Yeah. Yeah. How about Yadier out? Al- you know, someone that I shoved way up on last year's list. If they had a down year, how how do I you know how do I adjust for that? Do you
0: stick with someone like that? Yadier Alvarez signed out of Cuba this is the player about whom you speak mm-hmm. uh, by the Dodgers. Is this accurate so far? Mm -hmm. And uh, I believe – well, um, it appears as though you put a a future grade of 70 on his fastball and present of 60. This is what uh, one might characterize as an above-average fastball. And uh, overall, it was a 60 future value um, grade. And uh, well, what? He was fine. I think
1: on the overall 100, he was – right. But I think like on the overall 100, he was – I think I had him in as the second best right-handed pitching prospect in baseball. So, and while I agree generally, like his season was fine, it's not that sort of. It's not like I'm like, yep, that's the he's the the best guy or anything like that.
0: Now you actually had him as the third, but what, okay. what uh, of note here is that I had um, I had prepared, I had actually prepared a question for you about the first two players. Um, or the first two the first two the top two right-handed pitchers on your prospect list from from uh, last off season were mm-hmm. um well of course uh, so there, Alex Reyes Cardinals Anderson Espinoza in the Padres system formerly the Red Sox system and i i think what between them they pitched zero winnings this year right yeah. isn't that right
1: i think so yeah
0: yeah, yeah. and um <clears throat> I, I was thinking about this because, um, <laughs> you may or may not be aware, uh, this past week, Chris Mitchell <clears throat> published his, um, published a post essentially to the effect, I think it was called something like the players that Cato got right, you know? And, uh, essentially mm-hmm. these are lo- looking at the 2017 numbers for, um, a collection of players f- mostly, um, about whom the Cato projection system was optimistic, where maybe the reports were less so, and then a couple of other instances in which Cato was pessimistic when the industry was um, to the contrary. But M- Mitchell made an, a comment that, uh, and, I, and I'm interested in your thoughts on it. He said something to the effect of, um, "Well, he was talking about you know the the la- essentially the the lack of pitchers." On any k list you find right, and again this is mm-hmm. this is derived by you know this is derived empirically right. um, looking at the past win numbers uh, you know for, for players who uh, were looking at their at what they were like as prospects and then and then what they did as major leaguers, using that empirically to inform projections for prospects now And I think he said. That on the you know typical Cato top one hundred list, that it is two thirds hitters, right? Mm-hmm. Which could make sense to to one, I suppose. it Just if you were ask someone to come up with a generic list, the, and it, well, I can speak for myself. My inclination would be to uh, to make it fifty fifty hitters and pitchers, because hitting it's a binary. Relationship, right? These are hitters and these are pitchers. Um, but I suppose if you, well, I don't suppose. I, I mean, give, given the evidence of how um, of how pitchers develop, not just how they develop, but like uh, their exposure to injury uh, versus hitters, there is probably an argument to be made to put to to fill a list full of hitters. You know, but. Yeah, you, but someone, someone in the minor leagues is going to be a pitcher in the major leagues, right? Uh-huh. So, so you have to, like, they're, it, it, but maybe it's, maybe it's just flattened out. There's a
1: finite number of innings that, that need to be thrown.
0: During right. The yeah. Yeah. So do, do you have a sense? I, I didn't, I didn't count it up. It's not a big deal, but do you have a sense of, of what the distribution is for you for pitchers and hitters and whether you would entertain, okay. um, tweaking that? in the future or if that's not necessarily of great concern to you you you're you're looking to estimate future value and that's it it's
1: it's not something that i've considered before on like a macro level like you're describing mm-hmm. about adjusting the entire landscape of you know that top 100 list or the guys with who are have 50 future value or above uh, but the weighing pitcher risk against hitter stability and then what that does to make pitching scarce durable pitching scarce and how that might impact a given prospect's value like that is stuff on an individual level that I've considered uh but ultimately once i've gotten the future values then it's just about lining the guys up in the way that i that i like right. um but uh, as long as I think, as long as the process to get you used to get to an individual prospect's future value, as long as that is sound and applied in the same way to every prospect, then I think that that you're okay. Um, but you know, it's not it's not a thing that I've really <clears throat> thought about as far as adjusting the rankings and about how we look at prospects in general.
0: Well, pitch, obviously pitching. Uh, prospects are a bit terrifying. Now, listen. I will say, in clandestine fashion, uh, Eric Longenecker and I have just um, looked at, uh, identified the distribution of your list. Okay. Do, do you have a guess? Last offseason. Last offseason. Yeah. Ooh. Oh man, I'd say it's, I'd say it's fifty-five, forty-five hitters. Very close. Hmm. Eric, very close. Fifty-seven uh, forty-three. Uh, so y- y- you know you're actually not very far f- from the the two-thirds mark. That would just be displacing what uh, five more pitchers, essentially five or six more pitchers. Mm-hmm. No, I'm lying to you. No, I'm way lying to you. That would be nine more. Oh. So you are, <laughs> yeah, you are, you are further off from it. It's, th- but it's still obviously in in favor of hitters. Um, I don't I, – maybe talking with uh, Chris, you could sort of get at what would – at least what empirically would be the the golden relationship. He said about two-thirds. He didn't yeah. say any specifically. But that's still roughly 15 more hitters than pitchers.
1: I wonder if my tendency to punish pitching prospects for relief risk is part of what dilutes the number of guys. Oh, adjust it. Adjust for it, yeah. On that hundred, yeah.
0: Well, I think that um, so. Here is the thing: I, I think that the the cases of um, Alex Reyes and Espinoza illustrate the challenges of including pitchers. Uh, you know, did I do this with you on the phone,
1: or where I I picked up the like a ten year old BA handbook?
0: Was it you? Uh, we've done something similar, but I'm interested. What's the what, what exercise okay. did you? Uh, just, I was, I was talking to somebody
1: on the phone about how hard it is to do pitching and how volatile the pitching prospects are. And as an example, I just reached for like a 2008 Baseball America prospect handbook on a shelf and just started reading off the pitchers in the top 100. And you just can see how many of them are around. You could probably do it with one that's a little more recent and still see you know you would have more current big leaders, but you could see, oh, this prospect x was ranked fifteenth overall in a given season and is like an effective middle reliever now, yeah so you have it's there's a little bit more color to the to the name I wonder if as opposed to them just being all retired <laughs> yeah <laughs> well i wonder fifteen year old if
0: there actually might uh, let's see if the lists. If pitcher production might actually become – I'm not going to say more predictable, but if the construction of a top 100 list might actually um, bear a closer resemblance to what ultimately develops in the future, if pitching roles continue to develop in the direction that that they're developing, right? Because -hmm. because Andrew Miller – Became a, became a good r- relief pitcher eventually, right? But he was, um, if I'm not mistaken, right. he was a fairly well, a fairly well thought of prospect. Mm-hmm. And so, if he's a fairly well thought of prospect as, as a starter, and then he is relegated to the bullpen, that automatically places a ceiling on the, on the number of uh, wins he can produce, right? In theory. Mm. But, if he then, um, If he then starts, if he's working in a different role, he's not only, like, he's adding wins in a lot of interesting ways at that point. Not only is it whatever shows up in his war, but, like, maybe he's.
1: Right. The leverage is, is, it's more than that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There's some, there's something else occurring there. And also, of course, like, once he gets to, you know, once you get to the playoffs, like, he's, your pitchers like him become, their value becomes outsized, right? Um, and so, so maybe you'd say, yeah. On the one hand, did he become like a number two starter? No. No. But on the other hand, he his value perhaps um, did not um, did not do, or his you know his projected value his his prospective value um, has not decreased. In the same way that you might expect from a pitcher who, or, you know, in the past, maybe five, ten years ago, who was relegated to the bullpen. There's a higher ceiling now, just because of the expansion of his role.
1: I think Miller also a great example, and one I cite for uh, why you give guys time to find a role, even if it's short of what you wanted and hoped for it can still be effective but then on the other hand miller is sort of an exception in that he is exceptional at his new role in a way that uh we haven't really seen and part of it is because he's being wielded as this thing that uh has just been an idea until him
0: right
1: Uh, but like around that that chapman and miller trade deadline i was talking to people in baseball who thought that like as you seem to be indicating that like relievers will, are becoming valuable. S- look at what you can get for a reliever now. Uh, I think that that's more isolated to these two talents that are very special more than it is something that's going to, I think it be pervasive through the market. And I think that the trade deadline this, this season, uh, supports that.
0: With any particular players,
1: um, like, well, Jimmy, just like some of the relievers that were passed around at this deadline, it, the, the price tag just wasn't nearly as high.
0: So, what do you think, uh, Alex Reyes, Anderson Espinoza?
1: Yeah, uh, <laughs> this was so someone. So, someone brought. Someone brought this up at some point uh, as it re- – oh, it was in regards to the Padres uh, summer updated top 10 and how uh, I still had Espinosa above Quantrill. Um, and there's – it's apples to oranges to compare uh, in some respects because Espinosa's stuff across the board is just – like a take better than Quantrill's, just Quantrill is more competent strike thrower right now. He's also a few and he's years pitching. Older. Um, yeah, but he's also pitching. Um, but he is he had Tommy John, so is the risk in Tommy John guys that they don't come back with their stuff because we know it's been shown uh, that the rate of recovery from Tommy mm-hmm. John is pretty good. Um, so is the risk in them not coming back from their first Tommy John, or is the risk in the second Tommy looming,
0: John? The looming risk, and if that's the, hmm.
1: right, yeah. Uh And if it's the latter, then the Quantrill Espinoza situation is just a wash because they've both had Tommy John. Quantrill's back pitching after his first one, so like just objectively, there is less risk there because there still exists some risk that Espinoza won't be back to ninety-three. 93- plus with movement and a plus breaking ball and change up. Um, But the chances that he will are pretty good. And I just thought the difference in stuff there was enough that he, he held, he held more stock for me than, uh, than I think maybe he would for other people who know that he, who are a little bit more swayed by the fact. And also
0: it's development time, right? Is that, I mean, isn't that part of it? You know that there's the lost yeah. development time ahead of him. In fact, there was lost development time this year too because it took them a, it took
1: most of the season before he had the surgery. Like it, it, he didn't pitch all year, but it wasn't like he had TJ in April. Yeah.
0: Can I ask what, what was the idea that there was a thought that he mm. they would be able to rehab him, and that was it?
1: I heard from a uh, several different parties involved, uh, who were involved, but different (laughs) that there were, they were hoping he would come back and pitch and that early it was, he'll be back in June and then he'll be back after the all-star break. And then he's starting to throw and, and, uh, yeah, I was told from a lot of, from multiple parties during the course of the season that he was expected to pitch at some point during the summer and it just
0: didn't happen. So they put that off, and so, then it seems as though he's unlikely to return. But even um, by the end of the twenty eighteen season, now
1: I guess we'll have to see. Maybe I'll see him next next instructional league. But so, and then the situation with Reyes is mostly the same. Like you have, they incur some risk because uh, there is a rate of failure for Tommy John. Like it does exist, uh, it, but it isn't that high. And but the stuff I. Because they didn't pitch, I just have to assume and evaluate the stuff as it was before surgery. And for both those guys, yeah. it's pretty incredible stuff.
0: And of course, Reyes did it. Uh, yeah. Reyes has done it at the highest level, uh, which is probably even more promising. Oh yeah, perhaps the if there's something of concern regarding Espinoza is that um, he's just far away, just far. It's yeah, yeah it's far away. It's far away. But you were obviously smitten with him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sure, sure. Who wouldn't be and people? Ninety-three
1: to ninety-seven with movement and two plus, and two plus secondary pitches right now.
0: Yeah. <laughs> do, yeah. Do, would he have been? um Would he have been on a sort of? It wouldn't have been exactly this, but <clears throat> if he had been healthy to end last season, which he ended at what at Low A, would would he have been on an mm-hmm. on an express? Sort of uh, um, on a fast timetable up through the minors, do you think?
1: That would have involved his command developing very quickly, and uh based on what was already there, uh I'd say no. But if, the, if his command would have come quickly, then yeah. Then yeah. Uh. But I'd say probably not. He would have started the year at high A. That's where he was scheduled to start the year. So I guess there's a chance that if he would have pitched successfully, we – you know they pushed. They pushed guys from Lake Elsinore to Double A San Antonio in that system uh, most of the year. So I guess it's possible that he would have been in the upper minors at least, but I don't think he would have been no. a big leaguer. Uh,
0: Julio Urias, he made his debut at um, in his age nineteen season, which would, and this was Espinoza's mm-hmm. age nineteen season. So not quite.
1: What a shame that'll be if we lose him to injury.
0: Urias, yeah. Well. Because what, it's a, it's a, it's not a Tommy John surgery, is it? It's a left anterior capsule surgery.
1: Yeah. It's something that I'm not really
0: familiar with, like off the top of my head, the prognosis for. Shoulder. Shoulder is more frightening, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not, uh, not an expert, but I do know, or I think I know, uh, I know that I've read other people, right? I've heard other people say that shoulder is more difficult. So I feel comfortable passing that information along, Eric.
1: You know what I just thought about the Dodgers and and Padres both have, and it's possible just because I see these guys more often, but they both have more Mexican prospects than some of the other teams do. Like I was at Padres, instructs have a couple interesting kids from Tijuana. And I just wonder if it's easier for the clubs in Southern California to just be like, yeah, someone important is going to go see these guys. Yeah. Who, you know, can offer them money right away. Well, I think
0: that, um, wasn't Arius, wasn't he, wasn't he I don't know if it was discovered, discovered, but at least, uh, scouted on a trip to go sign Puig? Is that right? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I think that's been, that's been written about well. Yeah, you can, guys can go find that. Who are you
0: calling guys? you go to the listeners? An interesting story. You're All talking the, directly to the listeners? The listeners, yes, thank you. Did I break the <laughs> fourth wall? Is it a wall? Yeah, I guess yeah. It wouldn't yeah. Be. <laughs> Ooh, we
1: know people will listen to
0: this. Go check it, go check, go check it out. Um, the, uh, let me ask you another, um question here, and I, I was reminded of this while reading your uh, most recent piece on the, uh, instructional league, right? You're down, you're down there in, uh, mm-hmm. Phoenix and you're attending instructional league games. You said of Martin Carrasco, who is a uh, right-hander, uh, quite a young right-hander, I believe, in the, um, in the Padre mm-hmm. system. Perhaps he's one of the ones that, uh, you were citing just now. <clears throat> you, yeah. uh, you seem to have, some optimism regarding Martin Carrasco. Uh, but you also say he doesn't throw especially hard right now, 85 to 88, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I think there's another picture, maybe Ian Clarkin in the White Sox system. Um, you cite as throwing in the upper 80s, right? And yet you, I mean, you include him in the, in your notes. There's, there has to, there's some sort of, um,
1: Right, there's relevance there. He was a 2013 first rounder. The White Sox got him from the Yankees during the season as part of that Todd Frazier, Tommy Canley, right. uh, Tyler Clippard, Blake Rutherford trade. Um, so I I had asked uh, yeah. Dave Cameron. I don't I know agree. if it was the
0: most recent episode or before that. Um, if there's a certain sort of player, we we were we were talking about uh, obsolescence. Because um, his, his computer, he bought a new MacBook, right? And uh, he can't use his microphone with it because it has USB-C ports, this MacBook, and not just normal USB ports, right? So there's a, okay. there's a sort of forced uh, – planned obsolescence. The, the Mac, the Apple is saying, we do not want you to use this microphone. You got to have to buy whatever right, the yeah. one is. I mean, you could buy a, an adapter, but that's you know that's not the point. It's the point is that eventually, uh, you know, they regard USB-C as as what you know as the they regard it as as what will be the future technology. The point is, I said, is there is there a pitcher or is there a type type of player in the major leagues who will become obsolete? Not unlike uh, you know whatever sort of attachments you've typically. Used with your MacBook, and he said the pitcher. He said pitchers who throw in the '80s. He said uh, because because of the way the velocity has increased and it has increased pretty considerably. I think it's three miles per hour over the last decade. Um. And he said not only will there just will everyone throw hard, but those guys. when I said, well, what about Mark Burley, right? Or m- more recently, Brent mm-hmm. Suter, who I don't think. I think he averages 86 87 on his fastball and has had um uh, has recorded I think league average numbers w- with that kind of velocity. Uh w- what about will those sorts always exist? And his comment, I'm not saying he's right. He Dave Cameron would say he's right. You know, that's how he behaves in the world. Um he said um uh he said no because the sort cuz even because there will be so many guys who throw hard, that the ones who would have formerly, you know, been the, you know, the soft tossing, more, you know, precise guys, that like they will also be throwing hard. They'll just be everyone throwing hard. And I'm curious, I'm curious for your opinion on this. Is like, is is there no place? I mean, you mentioned again, you mentioned Martin Carrasco, who's who's, who's currently only throwing, eighty five to eighty eight, and you. Consider him mm. enough of a prospect to take some time out of your busy schedule to write, to write a paragraph about him. So you must think that there's there's some future. In, I assume that part of that future uh involves him throwing harder. Yeah. It does, um, yeah. <laughs> but do you, do you think – I guess what do you regard now as like minimal acceptable velocity? Is that the same as three years ago? And do you – do you plan on adjusting it as velocities continue to adjust? Minimum acceptable velocity. Yeah, math. I'm talking about math, bud. I, uh, I can tell you
1: that if if I'm at a high school or college game and I'm watching someone who's like a junior throw 87 to 90 um, – I will do little more than just note that I saw that player and, like, note the velocities and maybe slap uh, a grade on, like, the breaking ball. But I won't be going into the sort of d- detail in my notebook that I would for someone throwing, like, 91, 94, touch of five about, like, the delivery and the body. And, mm-hmm. uh like, I just don't scout those guys quite as hard. Um Unless there's a reason to think, as there is with Carrasco, who's an athletic 17 year old, um, that they'll throw harder in the future.
0: What's, what's, uh, what's Carrasco like in terms of build? Uh,
1: he's listed at like six foot one sixty five. I think at peak you could be looking at six to one ninety five.
0: Okay. Is there um, let me ask you, is there he's a
1: little more he's a little broader in the shoulders than he is uh, lanky and tall
0: is there a is there a body type that will that will cause she, you to get me in trouble? huh no. No, is there no is there a body type I mean, if you see a guy who's six seven, will you always project like
1: mass on the body and no, not always. There are some guys who are just skinny forever. You can do it looking at the parents. Um, I look at hands and feet. Uh, You can look at the shape of the lower half. There
0: are websites for that, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Not hands. I look at hands and feet. (laughs) Um, I look at. I I mean,
1: you inserted the fetish joke in before I started talking about ass shape
0: what are the different ass shapes well like
1: if a guy's got a, if a flatter if a guy is like stickish and flat mm-hmm. um, then I just there's less there's typically less mass added later on than if a guy is maybe a little more curvaceous and mm-hmm. cheeky <laughs> well,
0: well if you were to what do you think my physical projections like have you ever checked you'd be out?
1: like the assless stick mm-hmm. that doesn't that you know I project your body if you were eighteen, and I saw you. I'd probably project you out to look a lot like you look right now.
0: I—that's well, true because I'm thirty-seven. Since <laughs> twenty years, the I have an S-shaped body. Do you ever take that into account? Because uh, I tight, I tight, tight hamstrings that uh, causes my back to arch a little bit. So I, I have a bit of an S shape. There, there, up top of your up shoulders, like you, you have like a little bit of a. It just arches back a little bit because I got
1: tight hamstrings. It arches, back. My
0: back. I got ar. I got. I've arched my back. Where? What part of
1: your back? The lower part. It goes. In.
0: It's Kind of in, yeah. Okay. And then as you go I've, up I, your I back, I just imagine an S. Have you ever seen an S before? Yes, I you asshole. Seen an S. <laughs> <laughs> I, you and I have the
1: same shape. Are you shaped like an S? Yeah. I have tight hamstrings too, dude.
0: Yeah. There's. There's another. Uh, diagnostic. We did it. (laughs) But
1: yeah, like different bodies project in different ways. But Mm -hmm. I think what's interesting about the guys who throw slowly is that, and if we wipe out all the sidearm and submarine guys from that group, because they succeed for a different reason. That's almost independent of velocity, right? Right. Um, Like the Burleys of the world, the Jamie Moyers and Jared Weavers of the world, they don't exist initially throwing that slowly they get to the big leagues with better stuff than that and then that aspect of their skill set starts to die like everything eventually does oh yeah and just a reminder back, everyone <laughs> 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 uh and so, but they find other ways to succeed and they just keep proving that they can do it at the big league level for x amount of time until they can't anymore until they're jared weaver this season yeah. and then that's you know just sort of it,
0: so well I and I, okay, go ahead sorry,
1: I think you know we can look at the at a histogram of fastball velocities for starting pitchers and see that, oh yes, you can indeed succeed at the big league level to some degree with a thirty grade fastball or whatever, but those guys' route to doing that isn't throwing eighty three when they're seventeen
0: the Right, that's a good point. the the other uh, The other point that Cameron will make sometimes, um, and I think probably Felix Hernandez is a really good example of it, although there are many others, is that velocity allows a pitcher to buy time until he, while he's learning other pitches and about command, sure, and and how and you know pitch mix, you know, um, um, sequencing that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So the velocity. Is essentially a, just allows a guy to exist. Yeah, he gives him more opportunities things. to 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 transform. Yeah, right? and, and then and you, like you, the, I think the
1: the ying to that yang is that the maxim that uh, command and a changeup can be developed with reps doesn't just apply to the guys who throw hard. It applies to everyone, which is why sometimes guys like Kyle Hendricks pop up the way they do late because just like everybody else you can continue to develop your already good change up into something elite and you're commanded to something elite even though you're not one of those guys who throws hard
0: have you ever seen Brent Suter pitch
1: not I can't see it in my mind's eye or anything like that but I'm sure I have
0: yeah well, I mean I haven't watched him at length I can tell you that he's been worth two wins this this year nearly two wins in yeah. only 80 innings he throws 86. That's his average fastball. That's awesome. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. But, so minimum acceptable velocity right now for you is 87 to 90. That's for amateur player. Yeah. Unless, like I said, you,
1: you know, there's something that would indicate at some point in the future there will be more than that.
0: Right. Do you, do, is that different than five, three to five years ago? You know? When you're examining prospects. Wow. Yeah,
1: probably. Or at least, I've, my thinking on the subject has sharpened into something that is, is more correct. And I do think that, um, it's probably time to, like, explicitly reevaluate the way fastball velocity is graded. I, we might well, have said yeah, it on well, – I know I've said it in – it's what you mentioned at the back end of your initial question and people have asked about it in chats of mine. Uh, like when do you move – when do you move the 20 to 80 scale for stuff? Um, it, well, I'm sure it will be more frequently asked should we do it for like power output. Uh, yeah. Which my response will be not not yet. Like I'd like to see it for longer. I just think things are really shifting – like things are really shifting right now. Um, so I'm going to hold off on that. But like on v- pitching velocity, I think we're probably at a point, right, where it is time to to take a look and say, okay, uh let's move that 20 to 80 scale. Whereas in the past I've said I think its commun- communicative value is more important right now than it being explicitly correct um, and that me and a scout – Communicating and just saying this guy has a 40 fastball and knowing what that means, even if it's not correct, is better than it being correct.
0: Right, yes. And I remember just a couple of years ago discussing uh, the same matter with uh, former um, lead prospect analyst Kyla McDaniel.
1: Oh, that's uh, right. he, he,
0: he mentioned something to the same effect. I have an announcement to make. Which
1: is that are – Are we announcing it here?
0: Yes, we are. I, Which is that I should probably end uh, this edition of Fangraphs Audio. Okay. I've been a negligent uh, husband and father for much of the day mm-hmm. uh, on account of the dumb half marathon I ran. <laughs> and then I, when I came home, I immediately took a nap. And then right after that, I transplanted uh, 22 uh, – plants into our backyard and uh, this whole entire time my wife who is a an intelligent woman with her own interests has been um you know responsible for our child who for whatever his virtues is a uh, non you know
1: what sort of stuff would your wife typically do on a sunday before you guys had a kid
0: I have no – that's a great question. I have no idea. <laughs> 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 I I mean it de- depends where we were. You know, we, um, for a long time like we – she was in grad school and uh, then she was teaching and so it was all work. Yeah. work it was all work on Sundays. Um, there have been other times. I guess when we first moved here, we would maybe take a drive to the beach if it were somewhat – if it were climate weather. We, we live near a couple nice beaches here mm-hmm. um we might uh we might go visit my sister who lives in the area and that's always fun yeah or maybe you know um uh, she's you know she's got work too she likes to do some work catch up on some work on a sunday okay. not a lot right. of relaxation in this house i'll tell you
1: yeah i feel not you a lot
0: of that. not a lot of that Listen, well, I want to say continue to parent. Eric. Eric, what a privilege to, uh, though it is uh, oh. to be able to speak with you every two weeks. That's it's great. I mean, I speak with you more often than that. You you're aware. But uh for for this to Yeah, I remember most us, of those. for us to be compensated for this. Uh what a what a privilege. Will I remember it on my deathbed? No. No, I will not recall this at all on my deathbed. <laughs> I mostly just be uh be consumed by fear, uh, when I'm there, you know, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> when I'm doing that, but, uh, but, uh, you know, up until then, I'll probably tell, uh, yeah, I'll probably tell my kids, oh, it's a good time and everything, you know, hey, tell kids that. <laughs> it was a good time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: um, maybe in the, Infinite flash of light that I see before I die yeah. alone and scared.
0: Yeah. Well, we all die alone. <laughs> There's nothing so.
1: significant to think about.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Part of that flash of light will be a fleeting memory of our that auditory is, yeah. friendship.
0: Yeah. I, w- I want to tell you one last thing. When <clears throat> when you run the half marathon, the, the main marathon, right, in Portland, Maine, you run out and then you run back you essentially go out and you turn around the marathoners have to keep going right you you run out and you run back but um at some point all of the players all of not the players all the runners who are ahead of you they you know you start seeing them on the other side of the street they're coming back Mm
1: -hmm.
0: now the i'm sure it invites some very good runners but the main marathon is not it's not an elite event right it's not a it's not a um in terms of marathons right know, mm-hmm. Boston, New York and I don't know Philadelphia, Chicago, whatever, all the big cities. However, the speed at which even its main marathon, the speed at which they they run is amazing. I saw those guys coming back. I was actually I was mystified. I said, "Who are these who are these people on the other side of the street running so fast?" Because I did not understand that there was actually people who were participating in the same event as me. Cuz they had made the loop so quickly. Anyway, that's why I want to leave you with that. Eric, stick around for a moment. But in the meantime, I would like to thank you uh, for appearing in this edition of Fangraphs Audio. You're welcome. All right. That is Eric Longanigan. He's the lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.